Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. As I always say at the beginning, there have been now over 340 of them. And if this is new to you, you can find all the past ones archived at batgap.com under the past interview section. Batgap is a 501c3, which means it's a non-profit tax-exempt organization. And it exists solely on the basis of voluntary donations from people who appreciate it. So if you feel like supporting it, please do. There's a donate button on the uh, on the website. And if you don't feel like it, enjoy it anyway. It's freely available. So my guest today is Chadwick Johnson. Chad for short. He has a fairly long bio here that he sent me, but I think I won't read the whole thing because it's better if he just tells us this stuff. And uh, he'll tell this whole story in the process of this conversation. Tell you a little bit. He and his wife Erica have been married for 18 years. They live in Sacramento, California, with their five children. He has a bachelor's degree and a law degree. He took the bar exam, and we'll see. We'll keep our fingers crossed, and we can all pray for Chad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hope that he passes. Please. Um, and he also works as a computer programmer for Hewlett Packard. He's an adjunct professor at Sacramento City College. He teaches or conducts regular satsangs in the area, uh, has a YouTube channel with all kinds of good stuff on it. Used to be quite an athlete, too. I mean, you actually almost made the NFL, or you, you dipped your toe into it for a little bit, right? Yeah, a very, a very quick dip, a very <laughs> quick toe dip, you know, but it was a good experience. Yeah, and you're, you're a pretty good basketball player, so well-rounded individual. Thank you. I didn't know all that stuff was out there. You must have. I heard all this stuff and you talking to Jerry Katz and, you know, other other things that I listened to. You, you're uh, very thorough. Yeah. Very thorough. <laughs> well, I'm a junkie for this kind of thing. I, <laughs> I love kind of hearing people's stories and hearing what they have to say. And each week is a new adventure for me, getting to know the person. It's a great hobby. It is. It's a great hobby to have. Yeah. I have heard you tell your story in various other interviews, and it's quite an interesting one. Obviously, we don't have to start from infancy, but there are some key points in your whole trajectory that I think will lay a foundation for the discussion we're going to have. And okay. I, I think you know where to start. So let's go ahead and start, and we'll take it from there. Well, the best place to start is back to when I was in law school. That's when I started having bunch of panic attacks. I started having pretty severe panic attacks. And, you know, once you have one, you always think you're going to have another one. So for my four years in law school, I was always thinking I was going to have a panic attack. And then one day studying for my last Because you're under finals, so much pressure, right? Well, I don't Is know. Is that why a lot of stress or something? I don't know, because I, I never, from up to that point in my life, I had never experienced panic attacks and I've had stressful situations. So it was really something that I couldn't wrap my finger around. And they got progressively more intense. You know, I would have something like, what was that? And then next thing you know, it was like full on panic attacks and uh, very sensitive, very uh, like paranoid about having another panic attack. It's just not, a, it was just not a good uh, state. Right. And then like when I was studying for my very last set of finals, I was at Borders Bookstore and I took a walk around to take a break from studying and I saw the power of now. Somebody had told me about it previously and I put it in my phone, but you know, I had a list of books in my phone 
and I just happened to see that book. So right there in Borders, I started reading it. After not too long, right there in Borders, everything kind of just got silent. And I knew that at that point, I would not be having any panic attacks anymore. You know, it was like one of those drastic shifts. Yeah, you know, it's like drastic shifts are interesting. And it's almost like the people who have kind of reached more or less of a crisis often have the most drastic ones. And Eckhart Tolle is a case in point. I mean, he was almost suicidal, you know, and, and then he had that little thought of, you know, are there two of me? If, you know, who, I can't live with myself anymore. Wait a minute, are there two of me? And, and just that little thought triggered the shift. Exactly. And I, I, and I can't tell you what exactly I read in his book. Some, maybe it was that or something happened where the book was not important. Then I could just sit. My heart was just pounding in my chest and just kind of just look around and see was what was happening. You know, it's one of those things that I had never experienced or I'd never heard of happening. It was just a tremendous amount of peace about it. So I knew that I didn't have to worry or anything and that it was not a bad thing. And I also had like this shift. I just knew that I was no longer a victim to panic attacks. It was like they became very harmless. Everything about my mind movement became very secondary, I guess. Hmm. So it's not that you still had panic attacks, but they were harmless, but you actually just didn't have them, right? Is that what you're saying? Well, let me just say there was a honeymoon phase after I had that initial awakening. And then for several weeks or months, I'm, I don't know for sure, but I was just really in, in a state of bliss. I hate to use those cliche words, but I mean, you know, that's basically what it was. And then I, I would just every day I would walk to the river and just sit with the ducks and not meditate but just sit with the ducks and just be still mm. and just enjoy the not thinking, the lack of ambition or worrying about the future and just just kind of getting used to this and, you know, testing it too. Is this going to go away? Or, you know, there was just like a lot of confusion. But after a while, I wouldn't say I never had another panic attack, but my, my mind did turn and attack. I would say there was attempts or the onset of panic attacks where I was able to see it happen from a different perspective. So there was no panic in the attack, basically. <laughs> you know, there was no panic. Yeah, You're more detached from it or something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't say bliss is a cliche. Bliss is real and it's a real experience and it can be very profound and, and very nourishing and gratifying and, and wonderful. You know. I mean, it was definitely whatever it is, whatever you call it, it was definitely one of those things that made me realize right away that nothing else mattered. I mean, I could actually throw everything in that and say nothing else mattered. That's the only thing I cared about from that point on. Not my, not my job, not my family, not my friends, not my goals, not my dreams, not my aspirations, not anything. It was just that. Did you become irresponsible or uh, kind of like detached from your family or something? I mean, did, did your family Probably. perceive a kind of like a, a negative shift in you? Oh, no, no, no. Well, you got to remember, I was in law school and working full time at the time. So they weren't really seeing a whole bunch of me anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, this was during finals when this happened. So I was uh, still 
studying for finals after this shift had already happened. So I remember sitting in the library and just sitting in the library watching everyone walk around and stress about the exams. And even in my head thinking, you should probably be studying, but then having something that was greater saying all as well so that I could that I could just rest there. There was no sense of urgency about studying or anything. It was good. But going back to my family, they definitely saw a shift, but I think everyone on the outside was kind of probably pretty skeptical about that shift. And, you know, I don't blame them. It's something I probably didn't handle. I didn't handle right. Looking back on it as a very immature, having a spiritual awakening, my imagination caused me to do things that I uh, think that I was more than I was, you know, at the time. It was just, it was a combination of bliss or, you know, heaven and hell, even after the spiritual awakening, you know, after that honeymoon phase. Hmm. Okay. Did your uh, shift, you know, your newfound peace and tranquility actually help you get through finals better? You know, when I, when you say better, I would say definitely in the, from the state of not being stressed about it at all or, and honestly, you know, your last year of law school, your last set of finals, you, you already kind of know the, the drill. So it's not a very stressful set of exams anyway. So yeah, I don't know that it helped me too much as far as academically, but as far as uh, my stress, obviously um, there was no stress. I bet you it happened, helped you academically too. I mean, if you're all stressed out, then you can't think clearly and um, you know, you're likely to not do as well. I'm sure, I mean, my whole life has been healed by this awakening. If I don't get anything else, you know, my relationships, everything, I can't even, uh, just to name one thing would be arbitrary. You know, yeah, everything sure. has, has healed as yeah. a result. And so do you define what happened to you, right? You know, when you picked up that Eckhart Tolle book as the awakening or was that just sort of the beginning of it and then there was more to unfold i mean i think yeah that that was the awakening as far mm -hmm. as i'm concerned because from that point on i knew that i was not my thinking and although i fell asleep i fell asleep and i continued to fall asleep in my thinking there was never a there's no continuity in my ego you know what I mean? So when there's always these breaks in between egoic identification, then it can never take hold. So there was just like a underlying sense that all is well, even within the drama. Yeah. And you never lost that. That's cool. Yeah. And it just clarifies itself as I mature. So I got the sense from listening to your other recordings and interviews and things that this really set you off on a quest to understand what this is about. And you started devouring books and YouTube videos and all that stuff. Absolutely. I was already in that study mode, you know, like reading and just going deep. And I just took, well, I actually had paid for the bar exam and all of my classmates, while they were studying for the bar, I was at the river reading Eckhart Tolle or, you know, reading some type of spiritual materials. I didn't really start watching the videos until a little later on. So it was mostly just reading and just sitting with it. Course in Miracles, I've read that thick book probably 10 times over. I was reading in a way that I had never read before because mm -hmm. there was something in me that was teaching me how to read. Like I already knew that when you read, I'm not reading to learn. 
I just read and allow the reading to do whatever it's doing. My hand was being held the whole time, you know, and I just trusted everything that I found myself doing. I just trusted it. That's kind of interesting. I mean, even finding the power of now was sort of like your hand was being held. And uh, it's like, you're meant to see that, right? Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And then I guess you're saying that even ever since then, there's a sense that the intelligence of the universe or whatever has been guiding you and prompting you to do the next thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this point, this is six years, seven years later, six or seven, I don't know. It's been a long time now, and it has, it's a different experience. It's very obvious to me now, you know, that this is kind of unfolding, and we have a sense that time is moving forward and that we're kind of playing along. And this is just the way that I see it. In order for you to ever, for the questions to ever stop or for every, to ever feel that you're done or whatever, there has to be a, a knowing that something else is in control and everything is just so. Do you feel like you're done? I mean, the answer to all these questions are going to be yes and no, right? right. So, of course, I'm done <laughs> to a certain extent, you know. I don't have any questions. The ego doesn't, the, the egoic identification, Chad, the, the, the role that I play has a lot of maturing to do. I'm very immature. My spiritual knowing or understanding is far more advanced than my conditioning. And it's a beautiful uh, balance, you know, because I wouldn't have it any other way. I like the, uh, now I have embraced the part of me that is more conditioned, you know, <laughs> not embraced, but just like, you know, I enjoy that part equally as much. I'm not trying to get rid of it or try to heal it or anything. The universe knows what it's doing, right? <laughs> it made me laugh because I, I saw this sort of, not a cartoon, it had actual pictures in it the other day where uh, on the top it had a, this beautiful picture of the Buddha and it said, how I think I sound when I talk about spiritual stuff. And then on the bottom it had a picture of Forrest Gump sitting on the bench and it said, how I sound to others when I talk about spiritual stuff. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, part of the piece the, the lasting peace. I'm not talking about the sense of the peaceful experience or the bliss that comes and goes. I'm talking about part of the underlying peace that goes along with my experience comes from the sense that I am perfectly imperfect and I don't have to uh, heal anything or fix anything and that I don't have to be more enlightened or less enlightened or if I fall asleep in my identity or in my ego, my kids are getting on my nerves and I, and I want things to be different. There's nothing that's there to come around and judge and say, you should be more enlightened than that. You know? <laughs> it's just like, it is what it is. Yeah. So it sounds like you're very accepting. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I'm very accepting. I liked what you said, you know, your yes and no, when I asked, do you feel like you're done? Um, it's sort of like if somebody says, are you educated? Well, yeah, but am I as educated as a person can ever be? No, you know, it's sort of like there's always more possibility. Especially in this community of non-duality, there's always answer that is on, it depends on the level of frequency, basically, and this is just for the lack of better terms, you know, depends on every question that you ask, I have to listen to the question and extrapolate whether or not you're asking my ego do you want to know from chad or do you want to know from the 
a level of truth that's not kind of that's not playing along in the role of of duality like in order for us to have this conversation you have to play the role as the interviewer and i have to play the role as the spiritually awakening being and it's fun you know <laughs> but there is a, a level of truth or a level of knowing that is on a i would say deeper level and if we go there then we'll talk it'll sound different i think and there is and i've listened to a lot of your, I listen to all your YouTube videos, and um, I convert things to audio and then listen while I'm cutting the grass and stuff. But um, you know, I, there's definitely a lot of genuineness and a, a lot of wisdom coming through. And it didn't sound like you just learned the lines, you know, learned what to say. It was like you know, you're taking this stuff to heart and you're, you're speaking from your heart and coming out with some very helpful stuff for people. Really, I could say this when I give interviews. Obviously, uh, in the in this as a spiritual teacher, you want to say things that are that help push along the movement or the understanding. You don't want to say what everybody else is saying. You know, everybody says the same thing, regurgitates the same thing over and over again. So the good thing is, is that I don't really know a lot of the jargon. I'm not educated in that sense. So I just kind of speak from my experience. And in that sense, it's always going to be unique in a way. You know, it's always going to be fresh. That's really what everybody should be doing, in my opinion. Even if they're saying stuff and you know, quoting the Upanishads or speaking perennial wisdom, if they're not speaking from their experience, or if they don't make it clear that they're not speaking from their experience, then there's something disingenuous about it, and it's not going to have the potency or the, the value that it would have if they're actually you know, speaking from their experience. And i got to say that with spiritual teachers, uh, there is something in me that's, I, I mean, I'm just a big skeptic. I'm a very skeptical person, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I just feel like sometimes we are not being, I'm going to talk about spiritual teachers as we, you know, sometimes we are not being as honest as we can be. And it's not helping people to snap out of it. It seems like it's prolonging. For example, let me give you a perfect example. When I teach, when I go to teach satsang, one of the main things that I try to do is let people know that there are no levels of spirituality. You know, there's no one who is more enlightened than anyone else. And then I, I always get hit with the same thing. Oh, I just felt this person's presence when I was in their presence. Uh, I'm like, well, you know, it's your presence. It's your presence. It's not anyone else's presence that can make you feel in, whenever you feel like somebody else's presence is what's giving you this sense of spiritual uh, enlightenment or giving you closer to the truth, then you're kind of shunning your own divinity in a way. And we need to recognize our own, each person needs to recognize their own divinity. And every teacher should be trying to help everyone see that you are the divine, you are the divine. I don't know if I see that that much. Uh, yeah, um, a few responses to that. Um, I saw this quote from Amma the other day, Amachi, you know, and uh, someone asked her, or, there's a whole crowd around her, and someone asked her, are these people worshiping you? And she said, no, I'm worshiping them. I, s I see God in all of them. And when you sit in the presence of somebody, somebody like that, there's definitely a, a sense of 
divinity that sort of saturates the atmosphere and you feel very uplifted and all. But it's not like she's sending cosmic woo rays, you know, from her to you or something. It's more like right. it's, it's more like the kind of the, the ground of being is enlivened in that atmosphere and it's your own being and it's just it's getting enlivened in everyone and everything and, and therefore you feel this sort of upsurge or upliftment but it, again it's not a transmission from point A to point B it's more like she's just serving as a sort of a fertilizer which enlivens the, the ground for everyone helps to enliven the ground for everyone there's this synergy that takes place with the mutual participation of everyone there yeah and, and it's just like when I read that book from Eckhart Tolle, something he said made everything go silent, and I was present, and there was presence. And sometimes when you're in the presence of a being, maybe when you see them, it causes you to go silent. But it's not them, it's your own divinity that you experience. And obviously, they're all sensations, you know, this is all the world of sensations. That's just my skepticism, probably, you know, just not seeing anyone as carrying around a spirit that is any greater than anyone else. I feel like that's the way that it is out there, it seems. Yeah. Well, I think there's a yes and no to that one, too, in that, you know, we're all the same spirit. We're all the same being. You know, they say that there's that saying that, you know, we're, we're not human beings having spiritual experiences. We're spiritual beings having, having a human experience. But it actually goes beyond that because we're, we're being itself, which is not individuated. We're, you know, the cosmic person, the pure awareness, shining through all these different instruments, you know, your instrument, my instrument, and so on. And so in that sense, there are no levels, there's no difference. It's all God kind of seeing through various instruments of the divine, you know, this this person, that person. But, Mm -hmm. you know, but different instruments have different radiating capacities. Like, you know, I'm looking at the light bulbs in my room, and some of them are brighter, some of them are dimmer, but they're all tapped into the same electrical field yet they're designed in such a way that they have different capacities for transmitting that field and converting it into lumens, into light. Okay, perhaps. That's all you can say. That's what it seems like. I agree with you in that sense. Like, there's the physical, the science, you know, there's a science, but then even science is for the sake of human understanding. It's just all here so that it's packaged in a way that we can understand it. The idea behind non-duality, I guess, or what will ultimately cause all questions to cease is for there to be not just a understanding of non-duality, but actual experience of non-duality. Like a, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like to see that and then to see everything from the bubble of truth. Mm-hmm. And then it all kind of everything kind of becomes an experience as of or just like a temporary experience and there's really no truth to it but it's just how things seem and that definitely probably sounds like gobbledygook no it sounds good to me we can clarify it as we go okay let's do that and actually a question came in this would be a good time to ask it chris from sacramento you must know him asks i don't know what non-duality is could you help me understand it this question must be a plant you probably know this guy i don't i uh chris (laughs) Non-duality. Since we're going to use the term, we might as well define it. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting. I think non-duality is a great pointer to help us to see that everything is one thing. There could be countless definitions, but 
it's just another one of those pointers that uh, causes you to say, okay, you know, start questioning. I know that they're saying there's non-duality, but I see this pin here and that's not me. So there's duality there. So instead of, I guess, trying to disprove it, you kind of look within and see, okay, well then what might non-duality be pointing to? And the only way to do that is to not try to go at it intellectually trying to understand it because the tool that you use to understand non-duality is a tool that is in the world of duality. So it can't understand it intellectually like that. Non-duality, what it is, has to be seen so that then any question about it kind of loses its meaning. Anytime a question like that comes in, I just say, okay, well, non-duality will reveal itself in the stillness. Sit still and then just pay attention and non-duality will reveal itself. And then the word non-duality, it will lose its meaning and all other concepts will lose their meaning in that space. And then once you go back to thinking and participating in the world of duality, you'll be able to talk about non-duality. I think that's kind of how it works because a definition will kind of be misleading in a sense. Well, you talked about science a couple of minutes ago, and uh, you know, science could tell you, could tell us that on some level, the pen and your hand are, you know, the same thing. If you get down deep enough, at the atomic level, you wouldn't be able to distinguish them because they're all just carbon and this and that, various you know molecules and atoms, uh, and you can go even deeper than that, and everything's really all non-dual. It's all just a unified field or something. So that's, it's useful as a, as a metaphor, as an intellectual understanding. But what you're saying is that if this is to really be meaningful to us and, and have any kind of impact on our lives, we should somehow settle into the actual experience of the non-dual and not just be satisfied with intellectual explanations like that. Yeah, I mean, because it's just like anything. You could go infinitely, anything you want to learn about, you could, you could learn an infinite amount of information about this pen. And you can go as deep as you want to go, or you could just say it's a pen. When it comes to this world of spiritual enlightenment, you could be infinitely complex or you could be infinitely simple. Mm. And I think the natural way to go about it is to go, you feel like you have to learn a lot to find the complexity, figure out the complexities of everything, and then ultimately come to this spiritual awakening. From my experience, that's not the way it happened. You know, in fact, my ego needed to get to the point where it realized that it knew nothing and anything that it did know was still nothing. Uh, Muji says, if you multiply zero times anything, you get zero, right? So if you don't know everything, if you don't know all things, then you know nothing. The unknown so heavily outweighs in this metaphor the known that what can you really say is known and even if you can say something is known it's not important for the sake of spiritual awakening to know things you know and i i, I can't even say that that's true because i did a lot of reading and learning before i was ultimately i guess i just kind of get exhausted with trying to learn you know i don't know what it is well, I think all the reading and learning kind of gives you tools for being able to talk about it. 
But if you think that just the reading and learning is going to give you the experience of it, then you're going to be disappointed. You know, as, as Christ said, you know, except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about simplicity there. He's not saying we should all be uneducated or unable to express ourselves or anything like that. But there's, there's a sort of a simplicity about wise souls, even though they might be very learned in, in a way, but there's a childlike innocence about them. Look at somebody like Thich Nhat Hanh or, you know, Dalai Lama or something. That there's this sort of innocent sweetness about them that shines through. I think that's what you're alluding to. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that it's kind of like in order to, you have to have the courage to go in the opposite direction that you've been conditioned to go in order to find what you're looking for when it comes to spiritual enlightenment, I guess. You know, it's like, We've been trained to learn and to study and to go there. And I think the final question, the final question, when you when you have no more questions, it just comes down to, I know nothing, basically. That's what allows me to rest. I had to rest in I know nothing before I had the courage to go out and start reading and enjoying life again. I had to really see that all my wisdom, any wisdom that, that I have comes from when I am not using my intellect. It's from being silent and just experiencing. And then I'm able to recognize the obvious. I think the obviousness of the neutrality of everything is crying out, but we're all so asleep in our collective dream of this collective dream of bodies and our story that we can't see the obviousness of how neutral and silent everything is. And it's just waiting here for us to recognize. A, a teacher of mine used to say, was fond of saying that the, the way ordinary education works is the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. And uh, it just, uh, so in a, in a sense, ignorance expands faster than knowledge does. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, but he always sort of emphasized that there's a field, which is what you're alluding to here, which is he called the home of all knowledge, that it, all the sort of branches of information that sprout out as the universe reside there in, in their ultimate seed form. And if you can establish your awareness there, then you'll have the benefit of all knowledge without having to go through the tedious and impossible task of actually acquiring all knowledge. Which is impossible, right? Right. right. So, uh, you know, it all comes back down to uh, to grace. It all comes back down to uh, grace and what is being revealed to you. And it'll be revealed to you in the form of, it'll have the sensation of possibly you learned it or you read something and you got an aha moment or however the universe just creatively decides to give you this experience, ultimately it all comes back down to grace, something being revealed as opposed to, you know, discovered. So you went through like years of, you know, watching Bat Gap interviews. <laughs> yeah, I was actually just starting Bat Gap around the time you had that breakthrough with Eckhart Tolle, uh, 2009. And, uh, you know, you watched tons of Muji interviews and talks and everything like that. And did you, um, do you still kind of gobble that stuff up? Or did you eventually reach a phase at which you didn't even bother listening to things anymore? 
I don't really uh, watch videos anymore, and not until I found out I was going to do this this interview, and I was like, oh, you know. So, but every now and then I'll go back and you know just see what Muji, you know, listen to Muji and kind of get that nostalgic feeling. He doesn't know it, but he's my uncle. No, I feel like I watch him so much on auto play and just so many hours of Muji, mm. but now. It's more for just like curiosity or entertainment. And I have a very short attention span with spiritual teachers basically right now. Yeah. Personally, I, I hardly ever watch things because I don't like to sit at my computer any more than I already do. But I'm kind of a, a podcast junkie and I always got these things in my ears listening to some interesting thing while I'm riding my bike or something. I kill two birds with one stone. Oh, yeah. And I do that too. But nowadays, I listen to more to someone talking about financial management. I'm just always trying to better myself, improve my, I have a lot of learning to do still. And now I'm free to explore anything I want to explore without the psychological drama along with trying to be something else or whatever. What do you, uh actually talk about when you when you do satsangs what do you and what sort of tools if any do you equip people with so that they can be exploring on their own when i go to satsang i really have it could be a variety of topics but my goal with satsang is to just be as honest as i could be i always make sure that i let the people know some of the things that I do that they wouldn't expect for an enlightened person to do because I have a ton of examples. For instance? I don't know. I mean, getting irritated with my kids is a very, I have five kids and I'm not as patient as maybe Muji would be. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? He doesn't have any kids or if he does, they're not around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm just so, you know, like when I play basketball, sometimes it'll get heated and I want to win. It's very competitive in that sense. Or like I said, I'm half monkey, half mystic. And I, I embrace that. just because I play hard, you know, like in my role as Chad, I no longer feel like I have to monitor my spirituality to make sure that I don't go too far into my egoic role or that I, I might somehow lose it and be, you know, or I don't know, you know, yeah. I just, I'm free. You know, I remember when I first had my spiritual awakening, I was very detached from the world, basically. I wore the same clothes every day and I just was just not interested in social things or any type of endeavors. I didn't have any goals or dreams. There was no goals or dreams. Nothing else mattered. I was very cautious. I'm also a hip hop artist and people would ask me to do shows or to do a YouTube video with them. And I was like, no, I don't want to do anything right now because I don't want to make any waves in this, in these calm waters. And it was just a, it was a very insecure feeling of since that I had, I could lose it in a way. And, you know, and as time goes on, you know, it's just, that just kind of dissolves in a way. And now my life is. I'm very secure. I'm not very spiritual. Um, I'm not a very devout anything. I'll, I'll go to church. 
I can embrace Christianity, my Christian roots, and and participate fully in, in religion. I could go to church and enjoy a service and not be in there judging too much. I just could be, I could just allow the universe to do whatever it wants to do through this vessel without interfering in any way. And it's just, that's true freedom. Um, yeah, that's great. It's funny when you said religion, it's kind of, a, you, you looked a little bit like Chris Rock for a second. This is the expression <laughs> he makes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I was really at war with, not at war, but a very, you know, once I had my spiritual awakening, I wanted to really let Christians know that there's more God out there. Once my ego got back involved, I was just very not patient with others. Instead of my ego focused on trying to become the next um, Johnny Cochran or the best lawyer in the world, now my ego was letting people know how spiritually enlightened I was because mm, yeah. Spirit, I, spiritualized ego as people say oh I got it I got it I got it bad I got it so bad that I mean I'm glad it happened the way it did but I really put myself in some embarrassing situations you know and it, it's humility is the key yeah. humility is the key your ego I mean my ego needed to be humbled over and over and over and over again. And even to this day, I, I get a gentle reminder from the universe that I am in control of things. Or when I say I, I'm saying this this intelligence that has us here. The universe, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the universe, right. our God, is right. kind of orchestrating these things, you right. know. I give you the sense. I will give you the sense that you have wisdom. And I will put people around you that want to hear what you have to say. And when they ask questions, you'll be able to give them the answer. But you have to remember the source because otherwise life will have to remind you, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it does all the time. Yeah, that's very well put. You know, I, th I think that people kind of wake up as and who they are. It's not like we're all going to become St. Francis of Assisi or something, um, right. which is, but that's not to say that uh, a murderer is going to be some enlightened murderer who's going to go on murdering people you know, definite changes in personality take place, but there, there are certain fundamental attributes of personality and behavior and this and that and habits and tendencies that, you know, you might have all your life, no matter how, and quote unquote, enlightened you become. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I have to say that the opposite is also true. Before I read that book, Eckhart Tolle, uh, The Power of Now, me and my wife's marriage was just not good. We were basically just roommates. You know, there was no trust from either end, from either side. It was just a fundamental, like, division. There was just too much ego. And, you know, I had problems with my professors in law school because I felt like I was more than I... I told you I was in mock trial. We talked about it. I, I did mock trial when I was in law school and I and I was in this competition early, like my first year in law school. And it was like all first year students, like over a hundred students. And I won that competition and, I, and I'm working full time and I'm just kind of doing it into my spare time. And I won the competition and I just, you know, it just went to my head. I felt like oh, I'm, I'm killing it. And then I started having these panic attacks and 
everything started to unravel. And now I'm blaming my professors and I'm taking chances in law school. I'm cutting corners and I'm getting disciplined and it's just a lot going on. It was very humbling. It was a very humbling experience. I, I mean, I kind of lost my train of thought, but I think- No, that, you're, you're talking about humility and, um, and making the point that you, and we've been talking about this for a couple of minutes in a way, of how if you're on a spiritual path, the, the ego can still try to usurp it and uh, you know think that, oh, I'm so spiritual. In fact, there's this real funny guy that puts out these YouTube videos about being ultra-spiritual. You may have seen him. He wears like a headband and kind of long red hair. <laughs> uh, Tammy Simon interviewed him recently. Another thing, though, is if, if you're sincerely committed to spiritual unfoldment, God or whoever says, okay, buddy, you know, you asked for it. Now I'm going to grind you down a bit if necessary and humble you because you're not going to, you know, as, as Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think by rich man, he really meant egotistical person. You know, you have to sort of have that humility to get there. And, Absolutely. And so, and, and if you don't have it, or, and none of us do perfectly, then we're going to get smacked around a bit by situations which will help to um, refine us and, and diminish the, the sense of me, me, me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you be, and after, over time, you just become, even when my uh, ego rears its ugly head, you know, I just kind of notice. It's not a, necessarily a bad thing, but I just kind of notice. Like even being asked to be interviewed by you is like whoa you know that's like a rite of passage you know <laughs> i'm official now right you know yeah, don't so worry, that, i've interviewed all kinds of bozos so don't let it get you <laughs> I, I know exactly so even that in itself it was just like i get to laugh at myself a lot and i think that is part of why people come back to satsang you yeah. know it's just because we're in there together yeah and i just i get to kind of facilitate the conversation and in the early days after i you know i told i don't know if i told you this but um it, it might be in my bio that not long after i had that spiritual awakening at borders books i started teaching right away and it was just ridiculous but the thing is like what the teaching itself it was helpful and you know i still stay in touch with a lot of those people from those early days yeah. and you know it's just a beautiful thing but looking back on where i was um spiritually and what i was going through psychologically it just yeah. didn't match you know and i wanted to be a teacher so bad i wanted to you know be enlightened and i, I thought that was my calling because anybody that has such a drastic shift they must be called to be a teacher and now more so, you know, like, you know, I go to Sasan because I love the people that I meet with every month, but I don't need to be a teacher. Well, you know, I, I, I think if things. you keep it real as you're doing, then you can, you can do it. You know, I mean, you don't have to be the most, you don't have to be a Buddha to get out there and teach. Um, and if, if, if we do get puffed up, then the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You know, there's been plenty of examples of that. But I mean, I became a... a TM teacher when I was 21, and uh, you know when I when I was trained, uh, Marishi said, "Well, you know, when there's a war on, you can't afford to train sharpshooters. You just have to give everybody a rifle and send them out there." So I'm, you know, he was basically saying, "You know, you're a bunch of half-baked 
idiots, but <laughs> I'm going to get you, get you out there teaching because there's a need. And I, I had some friends who it went to their heads, and they were like getting up on a couch and having people hand them flowers and stuff, and they crashed and burned. But you know, if you, if you kept it real and said, hey, I'm just a guy, I've been meditating a couple of years, I have something valuable to offer, and here it is, then that, that worked. Yeah, and what I've really found is really helpful is the spiritual awakening that I had that even gives me the right to be given this interview or to give satsang, that came as a result of teaching and learning simultaneously. One of the reasons why I was excited to give this interview is because I don't know what I'm going to learn from what I might say or what you might say. You surprise yourself sometimes, don't you? All the time, all the time. And I get credit for it. You know, I get credit for, <laughs> for being this enlightened, this, wow, that was, that was so good. Or I'll, I might come up with a story. Sometimes I'll be in satsang and somebody will ask me a question. And then as soon as they ask the question, I'll sit for a moment and then I'll just break into this story. And I don't know where the story's going. I kind of know what is going, but I, I don't know how, I've never told the story. And then when, when I bring it home, I sit there and then they're like, oh yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was talking about. And I'm like, wow, where did that come from? That's and cool, isn't, I, it? isn't that the neatest experience? It's amazing. It's like you're kind of like getting out of the way and letting the, letting the divine use you as a loudspeaker. And, and the stuff that comes through is, uh, you know, out of the mouths of babes, so to speak, you know? So much so, and to the point where it's not for them. As a spiritual teacher, I get in that role, but there's a, it's like, while I'm in the role, I already know on the level of duality, there's a teacher and a student, but in truth, there's just this experience that I'm having. I don't have any proof that you are not a projection. I don't have any proof that anyone that I see or anything that I see is not a projection. I don't have any proof that even this, this body and my sense of separateness is not a projection. And I don't assume that it's not, it's, it's not important. I just know that when I'm speaking, there is not necessarily for the audience, even non-spiritual advice. I'll talk to my teenage daughter about something and I'll tell her something and I'll give her some advice and she'll go away and immediately I have to turn it on myself and say, okay, why did you have that experience? And not necessarily ask that question, but just kind of sit with that advice that I gave because any advice I give is always applicable to my own life in some way. Sometimes I do that after the fact but sometimes it's while I'm speaking, even as I'm speaking, as though the voice is speaking to myself. That's not completely accurate, but that's the best words I have. I know what you mean. A couple of questions came in from the audience. Let's get to them. One is from Dan in London. He wants to know, did you have any experiences of a spiritual nature as a child? I'm gonna say yes and no again. As a child, I do remember laying in bed in my grandmother's house. So I don't know, I had to be between the age of four and eight and watching my thoughts. When I give mindfulness exercises to people who are not necessarily uh, interested in non-duality or Advaita or whatever, and I just give mindfulness workshop, 
I always go back to just the fundamentals of how, what are the mechanics of this thing? Because if you just talk about the mechanics, sometimes that'll foster some type of understanding. And one of the things I do is I say, okay, we're going to, I do exercise like we're going to sit and just watch our thoughts, you know, and we'll count and we'll just sit and watch our thoughts. And when I say watch my thoughts, in a way, it's like watching them objectively and getting used to the experience of watching your thoughts objectively, uh, because that's not something that we are taught or it just doesn't feel natural. You know, it doesn't seem like you could watch your own thoughts objectively. And I remember as a young child sitting, watching my thoughts, watching me talk to myself and being the silent watcher of my own thoughts, talking to myself. But that's pretty much it. I grew up in the church and I always had a relationship with God. I was always in my youth group and I, I you know, I prayed, although there was always something missing. I felt like I was faking it sometimes, you know, but, you know, I, I believe that that relationship with God that I had early on was sincere. It's nothing like the experience I had after um, reading The Power of Now, but it was, I always felt like God was out there somewhere. From my experience, it seemed like God kind of honored that, even though I was looking else outside of myself for God. That was the extent of my experience up until my spiritual awakening. Cool. Speaking of your spiritual awakening, Lauren from Brazil asks, after your awakening, did you experience a, a phase of the dark night of the soul? You mentioned that you went through heaven and hell, if I heard you correctly. If so, how long did that period last, and didn't it bring you into greater surrender and devotion thanks yeah um i definitely went through that period of confusion i remember crying tears of joy just saying what is happening you know and just crying i remember this specifically one time i got out of the gym and i was just sitting in my car after playing basketball and i was just in the car and i was just crying sweeping crying just saying, why is this happening? What is going on here? What is this? And just being overcome with the sense of unconditional love from God or the creator, the intelligence that has me here. And then at the same time, during that same period of time, I remember crying, uh, saying, I didn't ask for this. Why are you doing this? Shaking my fist at God, you know, just crying the same tears but just being so confused like exhausted tired you know and just like what is going on when is this going to be over and it was a very confusing time how long it lasted the end of it was so subtle that i don't even know it just dissipated slowly but surely and i can't even put a time if i told you how long it lasted i would be making something up it just kind of dissipated over time and the same with like spiritual experiences i used to have these incredible experiences i don't even really like to share because they're just really unbelievable and they're just temporary experiences that come and goes but the experience was so amazing at the time it just uh, you know, encouraged me to seek more and seek more, trying to recreate maybe that experience or something like it. But then after a while, you know, spiritual experiences are kind of like, I don't really need a spiritual experience because what could be more of a spiritual experience than this conversation or just this moment? You know, I feel like when you first have your spiritual awakening, you need proof 
that this is real and this is just my take on things. So you have to have these amazing otherworldly yeah, kind of they're very convincing, right? Yeah. Very convincing. And that if you explain it to somebody else, they'd be like, Yeah, right, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> or maybe that was just your, you know, you thought it felt like that, but but I just don't think that there's a need for that anymore, you know? I want to play a little devil's advocate on that one. I think I heard you quote Aldous Huxley, I don't know if you mentioned it by name, saying, uh, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And he was actually referring to drug experiences, you know, psychedelics and all, meaning you don't keep taking them once you get the point. There's higher you know, dimensions and so on. Um, oh, pardon? I didn't know that's what he was referring to. I, I, I mean, believe, I never yeah, heard. that's what he was referring to because he he did psychedelics and he was just saying you don't keep doing them and doing them and doing them. You you get the idea. There's oh, oh, there's more to life than meets the eye, and then you find more sort of permanent, healthy ways of of discovering it. The the devil's advocate part is just that you know I, I know people who have been on the spiritual path for decades and they're very well grounded in in nice, profound state of self realization or whatever you want to call it. And we can think of historical examples, too, of various saints and sages and siddhas and you know, people like that. And they continue to have really profound experiences. They don't think that these experiences are something they need to hang on to, but they come and go, just as maybe good food comes and goes as you go through your, your life, you know, eating in various places. Uh, so it's, it's sort of like, I wouldn't necessarily give the impression that an awakened person or an enlightened person isn't going to have profound experiences still that come and go. It's just that they realize that those things are transitory and there's a ground that they rest in that is, that's the real significant thing. Okay, so what I'll say is I think that the universe knows what it's doing and that sometimes uh, the universe can cause, we call them spiritual experiences, but the universe will reveal those experiences, make a very everyday, ordinary experience more profound. Or Yesterday, for example, I was, uh, I drive Uber, by the way, and I went into um, Walgreens. It was late at night, so I got a five-hour energy, and I was standing outside of Walgreens, and I took a five-hour energy, and it was so quiet. I mean, it wasn't quiet, the cars were there, but it was quiet in my in within. I wasn't thinking a lot. And I was looking at this tree and I just stared at the tree. I could say it was amazing. You know, it was just like the tree came alive. It was just standing there and I was sober and I was just looking at this tree. And then I just carried on when got in the car and started driving. But that in itself was, I guess you could say that was a spiritual experience. Yeah. That's not like early on. I'll, I'll give you an example of an spiritual experience I had early on. So I'm sitting by the river one day and it's, it's kind of misting a little bit. I would go through phases where I would be trying to get back to the stillness. So I'd be sitting by the river and I would be trying to make my mind go still. And then what happened was when I finally came to this place of complete stillness, the rain stopped. And I noticed and I started looking around and my mind started going and then it would start raining again. And I would look around, and I was like, oh my God, it's raining. And I was like, let me see if I could do it again. And then I would be struggling, struggling. And then all of a sudden I'd fall right back into the bliss and then the rain would stop. So you thought you were controlling the rain or something? Well, I didn't think that at all. 
I didn't think I was controlling the rain. Well, maybe I did think that. I don't know. All I can say is that that happened like two or three or four, maybe three times mm -hmm. to where it was obvious. Like, wow. It may have been. I, I mean, if Jesus can, can calm those seas, you know, why not? It, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it really happened. I don't even know if that was a dream. Or did it really happen or did it not? It doesn't even matter. But uh, for some reason back then, I needed that type of experience. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm not in that phase of seeking right now. I'm not trying to, I don't need the universe to prove itself to me. I think the spiritual experiences are more sober. They're just more subtle and just, it's just different. I can't say no spiritual experiences. I just think that it's just a different type of, and then all, also, even the spiritual experiences that I had, I had no idea what they would be like before they came. So that still holds true today. There may be a spiritual experience that I'm, I experience tomorrow or coming up that I never have experienced. It's definitely not absolute like that. Okay. Hey, just a little something that has nothing to do with this interview, but since you mentioned five-hour energy, uh -huh. um, people listening might want to check this out. It's, there's a documentary on YouTube called Billions in Change, and it's by the guy who invented five-hour energy. And he, uh -huh. found, he found himself all of a sudden a multi-billionaire, and he thought, what am I going to do with all this money? So he set up this whole workshop, this thing in Michigan, where he um, it's like a think tank where they invent all kinds of amazing things to help the world, like being able to purify water with these machines that they can ship all over to these little villages and things that help health and all kinds of stuff. So whatever karma he's getting by selling this crap and having people drink it, <laughs> he's offsetting by exactly. doing some really good stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially driving Uber at 2.30 in the morning. Sometimes I need a little boost. Yeah, well, I hope you pass the bar exams and you can have an easier ride in that regard. Exactly, exactly. I will. Here's a question that came in from uh, Paul in Brisbane, Australia. He asks, when an awakening happens and then a teaching comes from that awakening, would that teaching, in fact, have brought on that awakening before the moment of grace? That is, would the teacher's own teaching have awakened them? This is my frustration when listening to spiritual teachers who are just as lost as we are before their moment of clarity. Do you understand the question? I'm not entirely sure that I do, but maybe you got something out of it. Well, what I can say to that is for those on a spiritual journey, um, we're very confused about cause and effect. We don't really understand how time works. The mind can't understand the sense, the uh, idea or the the phenomena of time moving from past. And like right now we're in the present, but time is moving forward. And that's very confusing. It's really confusing when it comes to the conversation of when someone is enlightened, because now you're talking about timelessness in the same language or the same conversation that you're talking about time-bound events, and it just doesn't work. In other words, uh, time's not so linear as we might think. It's absolutely, absolutely. Everything is, I mean, not, I'm not saying, I don't want to say everything is already predestined because that's also time-bound language. All I'm saying is that the now unfolds in a way that we can't understand. Spiritual teachers may be completely trying to brainwash you and something that they say causes you to have 
an awakening. It doesn't matter. You could hear it from a spiritual teacher or you can hear it from a cartoon or a commercial. Once the shift happens or once you fall into that instantaneous moment of stillness, then the cause and effect part of it, who told you or who said it or when it happened or all that, it just becomes meaningless. It loses all its meaning. Everything becomes silent and neutral. I don't know if that completely answers the question, but uh, spiritual teachers are very human. The most profound spiritual teacher that you've read about for centuries is misleading in a way. Every spiritual teacher is misleading the people because you don't have the words to express what you're trying to convey. There's no words to do it. So we're just all kind of just talking and hopefully at some point somebody somewhere hears something that gives them that aha moment. And then the person who has the aha moment, they sit in that bliss. And then once their ego kicks back in, they give that teacher credit for saying it, as opposed to just knowing that grace, there's a bigger picture here. The story of enlightenment doesn't have individuals. You know, the story of enlightenment is not an individual story. It's a holistic, all at once happening. Now, if you're looking in your story to find it, then it will forever evade your, your, you know, you'll never be able to grasp it because you're looking in a story or in a, in a person. I mean, and that's not necessarily true either, because I hear all stories of people who had spiritual teachers and teachers who've took them from one phase to another. But from my experience, there is definitely the ultimate enlightenment or the uh, what we're ultimately seeking has nothing to do with others or form or concepts or stories so we have to be able to take our attention away from all teachers it's kind of like you're watching videos you're hooked on the video because that's your it's like your pacifier you know or books it's like a pacifier and some people just want to stay on the pacifier they never want to put the pacifier down and just go into the unknown without anybody guiding. And I think that is the only way. No one can hold your hand all the way home. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I have a good friend who used to be with Adyashanti a whole lot. In fact, a number of friends. But uh, and at a certain point, he said to her, you know, you really don't need to come here anymore. And it's not like he didn't like her or, you know. Uh, she was, she did anything wrong. It's like, you know, hey, you, 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 it's time to take off the training wheels. But she gives tremendous um, credit to the time she spent with him. So there's a time, I would say, you know, to everything there is a season, turn, turn, turn. You know, there is a time for being with a spiritual teacher. There may be a time for leaving a spiritual teacher. And you can't make a sort of a general rule that applies equally to everyone always. That's very true. The only rule that I think applies to everyone always is that a spiritual teacher cannot hold your hand all the way home right right they can't do it for you also another way of looking at it you got to sort of pay your own dues and do your own and, work well yeah you have to do your own work and you have to instead of looking for wisdom outside of you at some point you have to trust the wisdom that's within because that wisdom within is what that's what it's all uh, about that's what's all about. That, that's, that's the questions. Yeah. So, Paul from Brisbane, if we 
didn't answer your question, if if Chad didn't answer your question, feel free to ask a follow-up. It'd be fine. Uh, yeah. But hopefully, we got it. What haven't we talked about that you'd like to you'd like to say? You know what I I think uh, I wouldn't mind talking about a little bit is the idea of using other your hobby is to give these interviews my hobby is to come up with creative ways to demystify uh, mysticism in a way yeah you're good at that by the way i love the the metaphors that you come up with and the little practical examples from daily life and all the illustrate points i've heard you do that a number of times and i think i think it's really nice yeah that's a, a hobby of mine i think younger the younger generation are less conditioned so it seems like sometimes they're more open to it. Like I'll go speak at the college to college students and like right there in class, people will be having experiences right in class. And I'm definitely uh, presenting it in a motivational presentation type way, but they're uh, having these experiences right there in class because they're just kind of like open to it. They don't have any preconceived barriers. I'm, I'm sure they fall right back into their normal routine, possibly, but they're definitely open to it. Oh, yeah. These things leave a residue. I mean, you, ha you have these any kind of experience like that, and it leaves an impression. I mean, you know, you might you remember some experiences you had when you were a little kid. So it's any little exposure is good. Yeah, the wider variety of ways that I have to articulate it also helps clarify my own, I guess, clarify my own seeing in a way. I can always use my, I'm very, I'm immature in a way. I'm very immature spiritually. And I say that because 2009 or whenever I read that book was not that long ago, right? So my conditioning has not completely caught up with my understanding or my knowing. Well, I got so, news for you. I mean, I've been doing this stuff since 1968 and I feel like I'm very immature spiritually. I mean, if you want to compare yourself with people, there there are always people who are light years beyond in terms of their spiritual maturity. So as Ajashanti always put it, you know, I, I feel like I'm always a beginner. Yeah, and that's the best way to be because it's like somebody who only likes one type of music. Well, that's cool if that type of music is on. But what if you're the type of person that likes all music? Yeah. Now that's a nice life to live. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with me staying a baby in a sense in this spiritual world, there's infinite unfolding, there's infinite learning or reconditioning. Like I get to see the evolution, I guess, of how my ego, my egoic identification matures, does, you know, I guess, less um, self-inflicted suffering or uh, no, because sometimes I suffer and, you know, that's just a part of it. I don't know that, I don't know that I want anything to change, but I do feel like a, there's, I still feel like a baby, like I'm still maturing. You know? I, I think that might be what beginner, they mean by beginner's mind in, in Zen, you know, that it, and it's actually a good thing to always have that attitude of only being a beginner. Um, yeah. It's funny you use that music example because I remember hearing Paul McCartney say one time, and you know he's probably one of the greatest musicians of our age, that he just likes all kinds of music, and he actually specifically mentioned rap and heavy metal and everything. He just exposes himself to the whole gamut, and it's interesting because um, 
you know, I'll do a particular interview, like last two weeks ago I did one with this woman who's a psychic and, and a channeler, and she got a certain amount of negative reaction. It's like, why are you, you know, boy, Bat Gap has reached a new low. Why are you interviewing somebody like this? Uh, people are leaving comments like that. And my attitude is that for some people, that could be huge. I mean, they can, it can make them realize that there's, um, not, there's more to life than just this physical dimension. You know, so that can be the perfect teaching for somebody. It's not necessarily the universal teaching for everybody, but look at the way God designs creation. There's just huge variety, uh, different strokes for different folks, as Sly and the Family Stone once sang. Absolutely, and I think that that, that was a huge part of my uh, awakening from my sense of things. I would. My wife just passed me a note. She, she wanted me to add that most of the feedback from that for that woman was very positive, but there were a few people who were griping about it and you know, saying that it was off-topic or something. I just feel like spirituality is much broader and more diverse than some people would like to believe. And people get a little bit fundamentalist fundamentalist in, in insisting that it has to be this particular way and no other, you know? Exactly. And like, for example, let me give an example. I had a situation where my wife and the neighbor, a good friend of her, they were having a discussion about someone else. In my head, I was saying, why are you judging them? Why are you judging that person? That person is who they are. Why are you judging them, right? But I didn't say anything. I didn't speak up on it. You know, I just kind of was in my head thinking, you're judging them, right? And then, obviously, before I could get to my back to my office, I kind of realized that I was judging my wife and her friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to be very open to what you can learn from everything. Like I, for a while, I was very turned off from Christianity. But like, really what I realized that I was turned off from a lot of Christians and the teaching of Christianity. But even that is, there's no justification for that. There's a lot of Christians that are doing a lot of very good, valuable work. Oh, and yeah. we should see what we can learn from these different teachings. I remember when I was younger, if someone was doing voodoo, then that was definitely from the devil, you know, if you were doing voodoo. But then when I was going through my spiritual awakening, I was free. I wasn't scared of exploring anything. And I remember watching a, a lady talk about voodoo and I was like, man, voodoo, let me see what she's saying. And she was really making a lot of sense. You know, she was speaking. I don't remember specifically, but I remember thinking, wow, uh, I would have never even listened to her if I was, you know, already saying that she was from the devil. So yeah. um, you can learn, you know, God is in control. Just as you were saying that, an email came in from somebody saying that Willie Nelson said that Frank Sinatra was his mentor, you know? I mean, so if you get outside our, our genre, our, our, custom, our comfort zone, you're more, probably more likely to learn something new than if you just stay in your niche. Absolutely, absolutely. You need to be, uh, actually, that's, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to be outside of our comfort zone, which another way to say that is we need to be exposed to our own conditioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like our own conditioning is very like sly and sneaky. It's, it can hide itself very well or being able to recognize your own conditioning is like one, a major component to being able to say, or to be awakening to the awakening process. Hey, is there any chance that you'd actually be able to do a rap thing during this interview or do you need preparation or music or something? Like <laughs> no, I mean, 
always have something that I could do. I guess you call it hip hop, or is that synonymous yeah. with rap, or is it better to say hip hop? I don't know. I guess it depends on the person you're talking to, right? <laughs> Some people want to segregate them, and other people are just like, it's all good. Uh -huh. For me, it doesn't matter. I just make rhymes, and I try to make them in a way that not only be respected in the hip hop community for the complexity or for the authenticity of the lyrics, but also that is bringing some type of consciousness along with it. But yeah, I could share something. On the one hand, I'm over the hill. On the other hand, my cup runneth over with skill. And I'm just trying to do Jehovah's will. Let the real know that it's real. This is self therapy and I'm the therapist. I'm one with the same intelligence that gave me this inheritance. So believe I'm a cherish this. I feel like a sage living in the age of Aquarius now. I'm trying to free the slaves like Harry and now, and lyrics rain on them like the various clouds. You are now rocking with the best, sending you the opposite of stress, unconditional love, knowledge of self, confidence and rest, the only way not to get depressed. So know this, you exist not just in the flesh, it's my hypothesis, the only option is to just give love. And there I go with that again. It must be all that matters then. That's great. That's Thank you. Thank you didn't just make that up, did you? No, no, no. That's <laughs> something I wrote. No. I, that would have been really that. impressive if you did. <laughs> I should have said, yeah, that was really. <laughs> no, I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote that down for sure. That took some thought time. That's great. I liked it. And you actually have a, um, a YouTube channel, don't you, where you have... Uh, a bunch of your your hip-hop music yeah i do i i started that back actually while i was in law school uh i started rapping when i was probably 30 32 years old you know mm -hmm. and i just started putting up videos and the feedback started coming in positive feedback and i just kept putting them out putting them out until i had that spiritual awakening that disappeared on everybody so if you like, I'll put a link to that on your about that page as well as to your regular website and stuff. That'll work. That'll work. That'll be good. Good. Yeah, I still I still uh, do a little writing here and there. It's not as consistent as I was before, but I only have one topic now. You're a one-trick pony. Yeah, one-trick pony now. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you could actually create a whole genre of spiritual rap, spiritual hip-hop. I, mean, I suppose there is that sort of, but you could make a greater emphasis on it, specialize in it? At this point, I'm like open to whatever happens. Like I have to really be, the process of writing hip hop music is, I guess like any other art, I have to really uh, focus on what I'm doing. It's not like a, a quick thing, so. Yeah, yeah, you have to kind of get that momentum going and. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I have to, especially if I haven't done it in, in a while, you know, right. then I have to dust off the cobwebs and it takes so much effort yeah. to just create this one little piece of a song, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I just don't, I don't know, but I, I like doing it every now and then. That's great. All right, so I sort of feel like we're kind of wrapping up here. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you'd like to tell people I have the chance? Not really. People watch these for different reasons, right? Everybody's in a different phase. I remember when I used to watch, I was kind of trying to find something that could help speed up my enlightenment, basically, or speed up the process of feeling like I had to seek so, so hard. I just hope that whoever's watching 
got whatever they are looking for, but also I want to encourage everyone to go within, be still. The silence can tell you more than any interview or any book. The silence is the, it's so counterintuitive to listen to the silence. It just seems like there's nothing there, so why would you go there? Sitting in the stillness sometimes is like staring at the sun. It gets so bright sometimes you have to look away. I would encourage people to just stay, stay, and don't, uh, you know, and try to be objective as you're talking to yourself or you could feel yourself, you could feel a sense of trying to be still or you feel yourself trying to be more enlightened. Watch all that movement because it's the watching of that movement and that watch your ego like that's a very subtle arrogance that kind of flies under the radar it's very arrogant to think that you could figure enlightenment out but it's something that we all go through so i would say watch that arrogance notice how the mind or the ego thinks that it's gonna eventually figure this out one day you know and don't judge it or if you do judge it notice the judging you know and then at some point remember those posters you used to stare at you could stare at them for a long time it just looks like a bunch of colors and then if you stare at it for a while eventually the 3d image would appear and i think sometimes it's like that you know you kind of just gotta sit and just constantly get in a habit of paying attention to what your mind is up to. That activity in itself does the trick and the effort will kind of subside. And the sense of the sense of thinking that you could figure it out subsides. And it's kind of like the next thing you know, you're no longer seeking. I think that's the biggest take home, I would say, to take out of this interview, um, you know, give up you know give up you know it won't happen you give up allow your ego to continue on the journey but you give up you know you can't do it yeah, yeah. and there's a there's a sort of a subtlety to that too because it could and, and it can be misinterpreted to mean like oh well might as well just sit on the couch and drink beer and watch television uh but one can still be very much engaged in spiritual pursuit but without the effort you know there can be it can be more of a, a surrender than a than an individual willful f force force-based kind of um, effort and and that's when you, you really get somewhere i think is is when you well is that bumper sticker let go and let god yeah and i think also you know that willful forceful effort you spoke about is very important as well perhaps at a stage yeah, at a stage, you know, you, you have to realize that that seeking is going to happen. You try not to seek is probably pretty useless because the ego wants to know and it thinks it's going to figure it out, you know. So I would say if you could boil it down to one word, it would be notice. Just notice because there's a lot going on on your behalf. And as you, there's a lot happening as though it is you and you are going along with it as though it is you. And a silent watching of that will reveal that there's no one in there. There's no individual, there's no person in there. There's just a sense, there's just a sense of someone being in there. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing, but to notice that, not because someone told you, because 
people are going to try to point you there by using different words and different books and whatever. But for you to pay attention and slowly but surely notice, I would say don't expect that aha moment, but you can't choose whether or not you're going to expect that aha moment. Just notice that you're expecting that aha moment. Watching your own thoughts objectively is a practice. It's something that you have to practice and then it becomes second nature. And then you, sh you realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, like, like Eckhart Tolle says, that you are not your thinking. You could swallow that and um, everything else will be kind of like the game. You know, you just play along with it. Yeah, play that's good. And maybe another note we could end on is that what we both said earlier that, you know, in a sense, we're all beginners. And, um, and so the, I always have a bone to pick with these people that say, well, you're just, I'm done and everybody else should just be done and all that because you're never done. I mean, you, you may have a sense of contentment and you're resting in that, in that sense of contentment, and, but there's no end to discovery and kind of refinement of clarity and understanding and so on. I'm just, I've just ne never met anyone whom I feel is done in that sense. And why would you want to be done? Yeah. What, does that, what does that mean? Anyone who claims to be done is so in their ego, how can you be done and then at the same time not, and there be the unknown? Because the unknown is so vast, there's no way you could claim to be done. Now, I could say that there's certain things that could be over. You could be past certain yeah. struggles. In that sense, yeah, you're done. But as long as I'm experiencing life through what we call a body, I look forward to the unknown of what's going to happen as far as my awareness and my, um, you know, you know, I think what it is, is like people are looking for that person who is so enlightened that they could follow. That is like a, a rock in the bush. You know, you throw a rock in the bush. If you want somebody to, if they're looking for you and they want to, and they're chasing you, throw a rock over there and they'll run over there. And I think that looking for a spiritual teacher, trying to find that ultimately enlightened person is definitely a rock in the bush. There are people who resonate with people more than others, but the universe will bring that person to you, into your life. And, you know, honestly, a lot of this kind of like filler, all the, it's just filler. The, what do you mean? Because we use all these different concepts and words to talk about something that is so simple. Muji puts it like this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely butcher this, but, he says, somebody's asking him how to get home. And he's like, well, you're here. And then, no, he's like, no, I'm sorry. He, I really want to know, like, how do I get all the way home? I want to be home, home. And then he said, okay, well, since they want to go on a journey, you send them up, go down to this street, and then you turn right. And then you go down a couple of blocks and you turn right and you turn, you know, and then you turn right and you come right and you give them these, this, this path. So then and you say, you, once you follow that path and then you'll arrive back home and they're like, perfect. Thank you. And then they, <laughs> they set off on their journey, you know? And uh, I think that's what the, the directions that we give in that analogy is a lot like 
all these books and interviews and the spiritual teaching that we do, you know, everybody's on their own journey. And in the course of your journey, it may seem so important at the time, but at some point you look back and you're like, oh, that was just, you know, I'm already at, I'm back where I thought was, I'm here, where I was looking for, you know, this is what I was always trying to find. All I had to do is just, when you stop seeking, you're enlightened, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you stop seeking, you're enlightened. And that's why I say people who are not seeking, people who are like, for example, my father-in-law, he's a Christian and he's, you know, he's over, he's up in the administration and he's very honest man. He lives the life that, you know, I get to see him in his underwear, you know, I've seen him behind closed doors and he is very consistent in what he does. In my eyes, he's as enlightened as you get. And you, you can't get any more enlightened than that. And he'll probably look at this video and, you know, or maybe he won't. And, or if you talk to him about non-duality, he'll be like, uh, you know, I'll just pray for you. <laughs> but who can be more enlightened? I can't, I definitely can't say that I'm more enlightened than that guy. It's just like, everybody is seeking the, we have this idea of what enlightenment means and the ego will have you going after what that idea is. If you knew ahead of time what it was, maybe you wouldn't seek so hard. You yeah, know? There's a great quote from T.S. Eliot. He said, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then that's where experiencing really begins, you know, and I think that's why people want enlightenment so bad, because when they hear stuff like that, they're like the ego kind of the imagination kind of gives them a sense of what that must be like. And they're like, well, what I'm at, where I'm at right now is not that. So I have to go get it. I mean, it makes sense. It's the, you know, it makes sense. I, I did the same thing. As a spiritual teacher, you want to figure out a creative way to help them to say, oh, really? This is it? Oh, well, then I could just carry on with life. Because that's ultimately what happened after I did all the crying and all the seeking and all the spiritual experiences and all the journeys and videos and books and all that. Ultimately, I arrived at this sober place of quiet security where I could now just enjoy all of the variety of life without looking through the lens of that egoic sense of lack or not being not good enough or whatever you know yeah but you know you went through all that stuff and in a way you kind of arrived back to where you started but you're a very different person now than you were and so it's not like all that stuff amounted to a, a big waste of time um you know you've been transformed so it, it really had its value so devil's you're not having panic attacks at least oh now that that's for sure that's for sure and also i love my wife my wife loves me back life has been really enriched it's been really enriched but it's like someone who is just slapping them if you just slap yourself over and over again when you stop slapping yourself it's gonna feel really good you know it's gonna be like uh that's really good. And I think that's just kind of how I was with the panic attacks and the egoic identification, trying to make Chad, this Chad person into something. Once that subsided, or once I realized that that was 
That's just all a figment of my imagination. 100%, not holding back just a little bit so that I could still communicate with others or to have my wife and my kids. To realize that even that is a part of my imagination. My kids have to participate. You have to participate. My wife has to participate in this dream of bodies. Otherwise, if we all got still and we say, okay, let's not pay attention to our roles. Let's just be here now and let silence be here. And let all roles and all conditioning fall away. And then I think you realize that there's no person here. The person only appears when I start engaging in my egoic, my mind movement. But when I'm not engaged in that, when my attention is not on my mind movement, there's no one in here. There's just spirit. There's just this. It's hard for the ego to wrap its mind around that everybody that you see is constantly thinking. So we've been so submerged in this dream or in the, in the thinking that we forget that there's a such thing as not being or not participating. And then the ego tells you, well, then if you're not participating, then that means you don't love your family or when you're not participating, my wife is not special. When I'm not participating, no one is special. There's no special my kid, one kid, my son, is not any more special than anyone else's son. I have to participate in this egoic dream in order for me to say, uh, that kid is really good at basketball and he's gonna be a superstar and I'm not really as concerned about your kid becoming a superstar. And to play in that dream and to uh, realize while you're in the dream, while, while you're playing in the dream, that it's still a dream. It doesn't make it any more real, but you could play in it and it doesn't disappear just because it's not real doesn't mean it's not here for your experiencing and you can't get the experience of love and the experience of competition and all these different and and, and stress and fear and joy and all the different tastes of experiencing that comes with participating in the dream yeah. but at the same time, just having a uh, something like this background, knowing this understanding or this sense that it's still kind of a dream. Yeah, it says in the Bhagavad Gita, established in yoga, perform action. So it doesn't say just sit and be in being. It says be in being, which is yoga, but perform action. And uh, Lord Krishna, who is supposed to be an avatar of God, you know, in, in that book says, what would happen to these worlds if I didn't constantly engage in action while remaining in my own nature? It's like both ends. It's not just the silence or just the activity, but in the integration of the two together that yeah. makes life much more than it otherwise would be. Well, I, I say, like, we are so much a part of nature that just like if you just sit still, Life move on, nature, everything will move on. If you just sit still and just look around as if you could, you know, take your awareness outside of your body and just look, it will continue to move on. Well, even within yourself, you could look at your own body and your own thoughts and your own experiences as a part of that movement. It's just gonna continue to do. For a long time, I struggled with Muji I remember the first time I heard Muji say, 
you are not the doer of your actions. And I just set that comment aside. I was like, uh, Muji's good, but he don't know what he's talking about right there. You know, <laughs> yeah. like he's really good, but he's a little off on that, you know, and I couldn't swallow that for a long time, but that's not an intellectual. He's not speaking to my ego when he says that he's pointing to something that's beyond my ego and I can't begin to understand what he's talking about until I sit still or not even sit still. Like you said, it's just about paying attention from the place of stillness to all of the movement that's carrying on. And don't separate yourself from that movement. Don't separate your own thought from the leaf blowing in the wind. Your thought movement is movement. Stillness is stillness. If it's not stillness, then it's movement. And it's like zeros and one. If you're zero, then everything else is one. Being able to realize that you are zero even while you're doing, while you're working, yeah, or while you're washing dishes or whatever. Sure, I mean, know? if you know yourself as that stillness, then you have the very real sense that you are not the doer because stillness doesn't do. Stillness is still. And yet doing goes on. So who's doing the doing? You know, what, what's doing it? There's, there are explanations for that. But that's, that's a real experience. Right, and you don't have to believe it. It's not a belief thing. You could disbelieve it. In fact, sure. in fact, the ego doesn't believe it. An, an ego can't believe it. It's unbelievable, but it's not for the belief system. And it, I mean, you could watch disbelief in silence, or I could be adamant against Donald Trump, like in politics, like oh, he is not a good president. I could watch my ego saying that and make even make an argument to someone who's an advocate of Donald Trump. But in the meantime. I'm watching myself objectively. I don't really have a stake in that argument. I just allow my ego to argue. You're not <laughs> you know? attached to it. No, but I do believe that he's not a good president. Yeah. He's, not, he's not presidential, but whatever happens, happens. Jimmy Fallon had a great thing on last night, which people can find on YouTube, where he had these little kids that were pretending that they were talking like Donald Trump, you know, saying, we are, we're going to build a wall, and it's going to be the best wall. Mexico's <laughs> going to pay for it and all this stuff. And it's just these little four or wow. five-year-olds. Five it's very funny. <laughs> Check it out on YouTube. <laughs> well, I'm, just, I'm pretty impressed with your invitation right there. <laughs> yeah. Just adamant, being adamant about anything is just an opportunity to see yourself objectively. Like anything you feel strongly about is a perfect opportunity to watch how I mean, especially even about what you believe about Advaita or non-duality or other religions. When I was going through my spiritual awakening, I went through my, uh, uh, what is that phase called? I, I might have creative visualization. Uh -huh, right. Yeah, I went through that phase while I was creating. And it really threw me into a whirlwind of confusion because it didn't line up with what I was, uh, my internal truth, trying to make something manifest trying to create something in a certain way, you know, I was just like, that can't, and then I would try it and I'd fall into it. And then I'd be like, that doesn't, I'm confused. It was just that, that caused a lot of confusion, you know, and then I got really antagonistic against it. You know, in my head, I was just adamant, like creative visualization. That is not the way to spiritual awakening. That is like basically a distraction. It's brainwashing in a way, you know, it's like the secret is another one. It's like, these are, people who are capitalizing off of people who are seeking 
true trying to come to a true spiritual awakening and these people out here are capitalizing on that their vulnerability by distracting them with trying to manifest something when they yeah, should be trivializing but you know, I mean the key thing here if we want to quote another bible first is seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee and that's the part that the secret leaves out is actually get a, seek ye the kingdom of heaven get established there and then things will be added unto you, but they'll, they'll, they won't necessarily be pearl necklaces and, and Mercedes. They'll be the things you actually need. They'll come more easily if you're grounded in, in that deep state. Yeah, and, and the thing is, if you have that Bible verse, then why do you need any other Bible verse? <laughs> why do you need any other saying? Also, another one is be still and know that I am God. You That's know, it's one. like, okay, well, that pretty much sums it up. Everything else is like directions around the corner back to home. Just be still or seek ye first the kingdom of God. But, you know, I, I mean, I said that to say now I'm not adamant against creative visualization. It's a tool. It's a tool. Yes, yes, it's a tool. Who am I to, if someone's into that, obviously it, it has some value. It's here, so it's from God. Also, a lot of these things can be stages for people. Like they might do that for a while, and then after a while, they might get kind of dissatisfied and think, "Well, that was interesting, but what what's next? What more is there? You know, what, could there be a deeper teaching?" And and they might not have even asked that question if they hadn't gone through the creative visualization thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what happened with me. It's like I was just trying to gobble up everything remotely related to spirituality. You know, there was a lot. There's a lot of for lack of a better word, it's just a lot of distractions out there. But like you said, how would you have come to the conclusion that everything, what conclude the conclusion I came to ultimately, and this I would attribute a lot to reading A Course in Miracles over and over again, is that if all concepts were math and you added them all up, they would all lead to uh, beyond concepts to enlightenment you have to be able to you know you have to read law and you have to read you know whatever you're into if you're into math then go all the way into math learn the deepest math and if you keep going eventually that will probably lead you to the same thing that if you go if you read a course of miracles over and over again i mean it's the combination of all these together and this that intense seeking that you start to get a bird's eye view of all of the concepts and then you can set all concepts aside they all add up to truth basically yeah that's interesting Kind of as you said that the image came to mind that, you know, all spokes on the wheel lead to the hub. You know, you take any spoke, follow it down, you get to the hub. Yeah, any spoke you take with honesty and humility, it seems to draw you toward like uh, another great analogy that Muji says. And you know, it's like a bathtub. You know, after you get out of bath and it has the debris from your dirty self in there and the the dirt right next to the hole is just going down fast those are the people who are getting sucked in and but the dirt back in the back of the back bathtub it kind of seems like it's just kind of floating there but but it's it's slowly but surely making its way into that hole and if you're here if you're in the back of the bathtub the natural tendency is 
I guess, to try to be in that hole, closer to that hole. And I think it's just kind of happening. And in the meantime, you'll seek and try to do everything you can to make it happen faster. But it's not necessary. If you do it, you do it. If you don't, you don't. You're getting pulled toward the hole whether you want to or not. You cannot fully let go and feel like, oh, I'm done seeking until you come to the realization that something else is doing this. Yeah. As long as you're depending on your own ego or your own abilities, that has to wear itself out. Yeah. And when you come to that realization, then it's like, let thy will be done. You know, here I am. What would you like to do with me? Thy will be done. Whatever it is, you know, and I'm at your service. I'm at your service. I told a story at Sasan one night. One of my daughters, when she was little, whenever I would leave the house, she would cry like, no, daddy, I want to go or don't leave, don't leave. And I'd be like, honey, um, I have to go. Whatever it is, I have to go. So I give her a kiss and I give her to her mom and she'd cry and then I'd leave. Right. And then my other daughter, she would do exactly the opposite. Like when it was time for me to go, honey, I got to go to work. She would go find my keys. Here, dad, here's your keys. And then I say, oh, thank you, honey. I give her the kiss. I give her a kiss and head out. There are two different approaches, but ultimately the same thing happened. I had to go. So you could be the person who's fighting and scratching and saying, no, don't leave. Or you could just be the type that says, okay, thy will be done. Because thy will is going to be done. Regardless, thy will is going to be done. That is a major aha moment. Like, oh, okay, well, I guess it doesn't make any sense to me to do all this resisting. And it's also like, okay, well, you take what you get. You get what you get. And it's not going to always be pleasant. It's not going to always be happy times. You just get what you get. Yeah. Byron Katie is always fond of saying that, you know, if you fight against reality, you're always going to lose. You're always going to lose. You're always going to lose. And the same is true for uh, fighting against stress or fighting against any other emotion that you or psychological state that you don't want. If you fight against it, you know, you can fight against it, but you're going to experience these things. It's just a part of it. You didn't take another five hour energy this morning, did you? No, actually, I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to take a good nap after this interview. You're doing pretty good for somebody who was up till God knows how late (laughs) driving an Uber car. I was excited to talk to you, really. It's it's a dream. Well, actually, you know, it's just like in this non-dual world, we're in our own, we're kind of in our own sub world. And the people that we look up to and admire are different than the people that the regular people look up to and admire, you know? So when I watch Boot at the Gas Pump interviews, I'm always kind of watching the questions that you ask. And if I, anytime I have a sense of, uh, that doesn't seem right, it seems like you always had that same sense and you know you'll ask a question like okay you know and it's a very honest approach to interviewing and i'll just you know excited about doing i've been talking about it to my family although they could care less i'm happy to be here you know that's great well i appreciate it oh let me just ask you i know you do the local satsangs there in sacramento do you do any like skype sessions with people or anything like that i have all my spiritual teaching has really tapered off a lot other than satsang. I'm not, I mean, every now and then I still have my website there. So people contact me and I'll do a Skype session. You know, I have one-on-one meetings. So if somebody contacted you, you would do it? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. 
and obviously you're entitled to charge some reasonable fee to cover your time. No, you're a busy guy. So I just wanted to throw that out there in case, because people sometimes wonder, well, I like this guy. How can I follow up? What can I do? You know, and they, but they might live in England or someplace, and so they, they, there's that opportunity if they're interested. Oh yeah, absolutely, and you know I love it. It's like a hobby, a passion of mine, you know, to continue to talk about it. But I also get a kick out of talking to people who are honestly, honestly in that the valley of the shadow of death, really there. They don't have any ulterior motives, but they're really just trying to be done. I like talking conversations with those people. Great. Okay. Well, thanks. This has really been good. We've it's been about forty-five minutes since I was about to conclude, but we just kept going because we, yeah, you know, this, the, we both love this stuff. Yeah, it's good. It's a good topic. It's a fun topic. Yeah. So let me make a few wrap-up points. Um, okay. I've been speaking with Chadwick Johnson. Everybody realizes that if they've gotten this far. And uh, as always, I will link to his website and anything else he wants me to link to from his page on batcap.com. You can get in touch with him through that if you want. This interview is part of an ongoing series, and if you go to the website you'll and poke around through the menus, you'll see the, the previous ones categorized in various ways. You'll see a place to sign up to be notified by email each time there's a new one. There's the PayPal button I mentioned in the beginning. There's an audio podcast of this that you can sign up for and subscribe to it on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, and you know, listen while you're commuting or whatever. There's even like things of like a ringtone and uh, for your phone if you want with the Batgap theme song. So if you explore all the men- all the menus, you'll find some fun stuff. I mentioned uh, last week that I was going to interview Byron Katie the next time I think, but then that sh- that got postponed a couple of times. So. Um, it's coming up. If a lot of people know about Byron Katie, and Byron Katie, and we're interested in that. But keep an eye on the upcoming interviews menu and see when that's going to be. Until next time, thanks for listening or watching. Thank you again, Chad. It was a lot of fun. It was very fun. I, I appreciate you allowing me to participate in this experience. Yeah, it's really great. I think was- people will enjoy this. And uh, as usually, it's kind of a marathon. I usually go over two hours, but you know, some people like that. And if they don't, they can always just get a taste and then go on to the next thing. Yeah, you can fast forward, <laughs> skip through it, whatever you want to do. All right, thanks. Uh, I'll talk to you later. All right, thank you, man. Bye bye.